Hello, I'm Dave and I'm the guy that puts this stuff together. Today's episode is a Getting Better Acquainted Extra featuring a few true stories that I've told live on stage, mostly at Spark London, which you can find out more about at stories.co.uk. And if our website isn't working, which it hasn't been for a little while, but I think it is now, but if it isn't, you can go and like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at SparkLDN. Two of the stories were told at Spark, one at the Hackney Night that I run every month at the Hackney Attic in Brixton, which happens on the second Monday of the month, and one upstairs at the Ritzy in Brixton, which is a night that I don't host, but I'm often at, and that happens on the third Monday of the month. And then the third story that you'll hear was recorded in Warwick as part of a storytelling event that I was running for our Warwickshire. And to wrap it all up, I'm finishing off with a song that I wrote recently uh, that was, that's been ripped from YouTube, so it's not the best mixing and also not the best guitar playing ever, but it's a new song and I'd really like to share it with you. Next week, we'll go back to the normal format of the show, which is conversations with other people about their lives and their interests and about my relationship to them and their relationship to me and our relationship to the world. I've got loads of conversations booked in, so there's going to be plenty of new ones coming out. I might also put out some more replayed episodes in the coming weeks. And the two big events in the life of Getting Better Acquainted this year, I'm going to do a two-part special about when I took my dad back to Bristol to see the house and the places that he grew up and he's 93 years old so it's kind of a a traveling back in time with somebody who can't quite remember what that time was even like anymore and the other thing that will be coming up I don't know when because I keep on putting these extra episodes that don't count as numbers or replayed episodes which also don't count as numbers should be 10 weeks but it might be longer there'll be the 300th episode or the 300th episode season so uh, I've got some hopefully I've got some treats in store for that they're not recorded yet so touch wood who knows but that will be celebrated in some kind of way this year on the show I need to get better please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you So troubles are an interesting word, isn't it? And it's a a thing that I think gets kind of fixed on some people and not others, like troublemakers. Some people get considered troublemakers and others don't. Uh, In my home life, in my childhood life, uh, in my house, uh, I was, I guess, considered a bit of a troublemaker by my mum. But the trouble I would get into there was not very fair generally and generally ended in violence. So I'm not going to go into that too much. Um, But uh, at school I was not considered to be a troublemaker um certainly when I moved schools uh, at 13 from a school where I guess I'd been kind of considered to be a SWAT, uh, but nobody bullied me for it, and moved to a new school where I didn't have any friends and I had a different accent from everyone in that school. Uh, I was not considered to be a troublemaker because I ended up being the kid that gets the nickname that everybody kind of spits on and kicks in the corridors. I was kind of not kind of cool enough to be a troublemaker. Uh, One day in a a lesson, uh, somebody decided that I looked like a Melvin. I have no idea what a Melvin looks like, but I was annoyed. 
by this uh, accusation. Uh, so I said, I, I'm not a Melvin. And uh, they kept saying, I look like a Melvin. And I kept saying, I don't. Uh, and then the name stuck. Uh, so it went viral. Uh, and everybody, any age in the school, uh, kids uh, knew to call me Melvin and to kind of treat me like I wasn't a proper human being. Uh, you know, so I wasn't a troublemaker. Um, but other kids did get that, that label and were considered troublemakers. And I never really thought that this was fair. Uh, fairness was something that I, I cared a lot about, which is why I got into trouble these two times I'm going to tell you about. Uh, so the first time, um, you know, as I say, I was being called Melvin all the time and a kid was calling me Melvin and he stole my hat. I ran after him to get my hat back. Uh, and I grabbed my hat off him and he was, you know, a couple of years younger than me and very small. So I could have beaten him up if I wanted to is how I was feeling. Um, but I didn't want to because I believed in fairness and nonviolence. So I threw him on the ground to kind of demonstrate I could beat him up if I wanted to. Uh, but the ground didn't turn out to be the ground it turned out to be the corner of a, of a, of a kind of post and his head uh, hit on that. There was blood everywhere. I thought I'd killed him and I ran away. Uh, but it turns out that scalps just bleed a lot. Uh, and so I hadn't killed him. And I ended up kind of going up and being in the sort of head, uh, the deputy head's office and being given uh, s- sweet tea because I was in shock. I literally was in shock. Uh, and uh, as punishment for that action, I was given an unofficial suspension, which is what you give to your kind of straight A students because you don't want them to actually be having bad records. And that's what I mean. It's not very fair who gets to be considered a troublemaker. The next day when I went into school after doing that, uh, the teachers came up to me, quite a few teachers came up to me and congratulated me for hurting this kid the day before. And that's what I mean, right? Why was that kid considered to be a troublemaker? I'm not saying he didn't annoy me in that moment, but he stole that hat off me. But I'm not, I don't think that that justifies this idea of thanking me, of congratulating me from the staff of the school who are supposed to be protecting both me and that boy. Uh, and then the next time I got unaffected officially suspended uh, was when again uh, a kid was being mean to me calling me names uh, calling me Melvin uh, and uh, he was smaller than me again so I wanted to demonstrate that I could beat him up I'd learnt from my previous experience and didn't throw him on the floor uh, this time I grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and I held him up against the wall and, and said you know I could beat you up if I wanted to but I'm not going to and felt very kind of like a hero in a film uh, which is when uh, a girl uh, his friend grabbed me from behind uh, and held me back and then pushed me to the ground and held me down and at that point I felt kind of very complicated about the taboo that I agree with that you shouldn't hit women uh, but it meant that I didn't know how to extract myself from this uh, from the being pinned to the ground by this girl uh, and while she was pinning me to the ground the kid that I'd held up against the wall and his mate booted me repeatedly in the sort of chest and stomach and in my face and smashed my glasses um, so yeah that time I was also uh, unofficially suspended uh, but out of the kids who'd, who'd uh, been in that incident one of them was expelled and another one was suspended uh, and I I felt at the time this was very unfair because uh, we'd both been in the fight. I'd kind of started it and I felt like I should get the same treatment as them. Now, I don't know if I feel that quite so much. I do see how I was kind of an innocent party in that. But I'm very aware that other people weren't getting the same breaks as me. I don't think that the solution is necessary to expel those kids and to treat them as troublemakers and to nail that into them. And one of the reasons I think that is because when I was being bullied at school, there were two kids who were troublemakers who kept me alive and looked 
looked after me. And they were both younger than me, like these other kids who I'd, I'd, I've beaten up in these other parts of the story. Um, but they, they didn't treat me like I wasn't a human being. Uh, I guess it's because I smoked cigarettes and I could get served for cigarettes and they couldn't get served for cigarettes. And so when I, they would see me, they'd be like, all right, Melvin. And I'd be like, all right. And they'd be like, you got a cigarette? And I'd be like, yeah. And I, when I gave them those cigarettes, I joined their club. And they would like sort people out. They would like talk to people if they were, if they were giving me hassle. These two kids who were smaller than me would go around and sort of be my mafiosos. Uh, they, they, were, they were kind of, they were troublemakers. I mean, they used to go uh, jo- joyriding. Uh, they used to kind of like steal like uh, from houses. They once said to me, Melvin, Melvin, what you've got to do is you've got to always have two pairs of socks on. Uh, because if you want to steal from someone's house, you've got to, you take one pair of socks off and you put it on your hands and you've got gloves. You've always got gloves. And they said, if you haven't got two pairs of socks on, what you do is you, you rob a house that has got washing on the line and then they'll have socks on the washing line and you can take those socks. And I think that's quite a sweet, right? That actually tells you how young these kids were uh, as much as they thought that they were cool. Uh, but they did think that they were cool and they thought they were a little bit too cool for me to kind of be remain friends with them because at a certain point they stole the lab technician's car and went for a joyride and then they told me about this. And that was awkward because I was also friends with some of the teachers and like, I did not want to be like uh, like withholding this information from friends, but I didn't want to tell on friends. So I kind of sort of drifted away from them and sort of ghosted them, I guess, and stopped being their friends because I didn't think that they were troublemakers born. Like they didn't grow, they, they weren't born troublemakers. And I've worked with young kids and I don't know any kids who are born troublemakers. Like anyone under five, there's hope, right? Over five, many there are not hope. And I'm not suggesting that there's hope always, but we're not born troublemakers. And so having never been considered a troublemaker at school, I wish I had been a little bit because I did sometimes cause trouble, but I never got caught. And I wish that those kids that were considered to be troublemakers were not given that label because nobody needs that label. We all cause trouble sometimes, don't we, right? We all cause trouble sometimes. So I'm not sure what dream we were chasing. Like initially, we were we were pretty confused in this story. So the we is uh, me and my partner, uh, although I would have called her my girlfriend at the time because that was like, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and we were at university and we were short on cash. And so we decided to uh, go with some friends to the Glastonbury Festival uh, in order to kind of work doing cash and traffic management. Uh, and uh, we this was our idea. We thought that this would make us a, a kind of big chunk of money there are a few problems with this first of all we didn't factor in the amount it would cost for us to travel to the Glastonbury festival and back so we pretty much didn't make any money from this entire story uh and the second thing that we didn't reckon with is we sort of thought oh yeah like our friends are doing it for a couple of days and then they're going to go to the festival but we'll work all the way through uh and uh, we'll still be able to enjoy the Glastonbury festival uh that was not true we did not enjoy the Glastonbury festival at all we hardly even saw the Glastonbury festival because that was the first year that they put up the kind of effective fences uh, so everything was chaos outside and the people dealing with that chaos was us, the cash and traffic managers. Uh, the thing is, we were 
we had managers in our title, but we had no idea what the fuck we were doing. Uh, and what happened ev- every day is uh, at five in the morning, we had people screaming above our tents, get up, get out of bed, right? Like a military boot camp, right? We had to get up. We got like one, like, I don't even know if we got any breakfast, but, but if, if we did, it was very small amount of breakfast. Then we, had to, we were herded into a van and taken out to a different field to stand and be the p- people uh, dealing with the millions and millions of like uh, dr- cars and people and all of the drug dealers who couldn't get in, who were kind of kind of just roaming the car parks um and and yeah and so and we didn't have like they didn't give us any food it was 12 hour shifts we did sometimes we didn't get any water um sometimes we would be grabbed and taken away and, uh, and put on our own in a field miles from anywhere with no kind of way of contacting anybody else and and sometimes me and you know we'd be with each other and that was a little bit better um and so yeah it was a horrible horrible experience and the only sort of part of Glastonbury we saw is one time we went in to go to the toilet and we could hear uh, ash playing in the distance uh, but it was it really wasn't worth it and we had this incredibly horrible time and it was sunny as well so we were sunburned and we were like have, we it was just the worst uh, but then at the end of this uh, we were going to be going with our friends who had been enjoying the festival uh, back to Bristol uh, for the night to stay there for the night before we went back to Lancaster where we were going to university uh, and so what happened is you know we finished our last shift we had like an overpowering form of kind of euphoria we even felt nice about the horrible people who'd been shouting at us every day in the tents because they were enjoying a moment singing along to Rod Stewart uh, so that made us like them I don't think that in hindsight I don't think that was right where they were probably still horrible uh, but they just like singing sometimes um, but yeah so we had this moment of euphoria and we got onto the bus and we got to, like went like and we were expecting our friend to join us on the bus uh, and they didn't and so we kind of like drove off in the bus to Bristol without any way of knowing where we were staying. We didn't have the address uh, of, of, of our friend's parent. Um, uh, our phones uh, very quickly ran out of battery. Uh, so we found ourselves in Bristol uh, with no idea like how, what we were going to do. Like if we were going to, like our tickets were for the next day. So I guess we were thinking we would probably have to sleep on the streets. Um, and that's a really sobering moment when you're like, I have no other options but to sleep on the streets. And it really focuses your mind. And it focused our mind back to a, a few days before when we'd been in a car driving from our friend's house to the, uh, to the uh, bus station, uh, not really thinking, you know, we'd been talking, looking out the window a little bit. But suddenly, all of those little moments that we'd seen, like out of the window, just like passing by, we suddenly could start to piece together these weird landmarks, like a post box or uh, a statue or a, a children's a children's hospital that had a kind of brightly colored design on the outside of it and we suddenly found ourselves kind of like suddenly we were like oh we have some memory of some landmarks so maybe we can do this and we sort of found ourselves kind of feeling our way through the city of Bristol every time we thought we'd lost like every time we thought that this dream of this this bed at the end which was really all we really wanted at that moment every time we thought we would had lost that dream uh, we would suddenly see another landmark like a teddy bear in a window uh, of a shop that we remember just seeing and we found our way back to uh, the house and we knocked on the door in the middle of the night and our friend's mum opened the door and we've been told not to expect anything she'd just give us a bedroom but you know what she was really nice and she was like she saw that we were exhausted she 
brought us in. She like made us food, like proper food. We hadn't had like food in days. And we were like, like, and we were just sat there at the, at the, at the dinner table and she started like, you know, and, and it was a really nice moment, I think. I think she, she wanted to find out a little bit about her daughter through us, you know. So like, yeah, okay, maybe her daughter would, would have expected to just be put into, you know, in a sleeping bag to the side, but she actually wanted to connect with us in a different way. And we had this kind of like amazing moment. And in a way, not, you know, what we wanted from Glastonbury was a great festival. We did not get that dream. Uh, we also wanted some money. Uh, we did not get that dream. But in that moment, we got this kind of dream of just feeling safe and homely and like, you know, not on the streets, which is in a way the, the best kind of dream you can really have, I think, in this world. I used to live in Coventry when I was uh, younger and I moved there when I was eight and I moved there from North Wales so I moved there from a kind of country village paradise uh, and then I went to Coventry which I'm not saying anything negative about Coventry but it isn't a country village paradise uh, far from it and so the first thing that I really remember connecting with in Coventry wasn't in Coventry it was outside of Coventry it was Coombe Abbey Country Park that some of you may know uh, the first time we went to, to Coombe Abbey Country Park with my, I was with my my mum and my dad who uh, I, I don't know why they were both there they, they had they had split up but they still spent a lot of time together at various different times but my mum and my dad uh, my brother and my sister and we went to Coombe Abbey we had a really great day and as we were leaving the park uh, it was a really kind of like autumn day so there was there was leaves everywhere and it was really beautiful and we were walking out of the park and I saw this statue and uh, I thought well I'll go up and look at that statue and, and see what that statue is and I walked uh, towards the statue and I walked towards the statue and I walked towards the statue and then suddenly I was in cold water up to my, kind of my, I guess up to, yeah, up to my upper thigh uh, even. Uh, so yeah, and I was shocked. I didn't know what had happened. And it turned out that the statue that I'd been walking towards was a fountain. And the leaves had looked like ground, but they were not the ground. Uh, and I was stood there up to my thighs in water. And basically, you know, from the point of view of my family, they'd been walking along with me and then I just literally just decided to walk into a fountain for no reason like it wasn't like I tripped or anything I like properly walked it was very determined so instead of getting any sympathy from my family uh, all I got was lots and lots of like laughter and my mum kept saying you know you think you're Jesus you think you're Jesus and that did not go away that lasted for a long time with her repeatedly uh, commenting on how I thought I was Jesus because I fell in uh, Coombe Abbey uh, Country Park Fountain which didn't help as well that when I went to secondary school uh, in Coventry, I fell in the pond there twice, uh, so that only cemented this kind of uh, he thinks he's Jesus thing going on and, and I guess these days you could say uh, I look a little bit more like Jesus than when I was eight, um, but certainly I do not think I'm Jesus, just uh, for, for clarity's sake um, but it's an interesting thing 
like my time in Coventry was a quite a complicated time in my life. My my family was sort of splitting apart. There was lots of horrible stuff going on at home, uh, which I always thought kind of was very represented by the the two uh, cathedrals of Coventry, the new cathedral of like the hope and the the beauty that can be born out of destruction, but also the old cathedral, which was kind of a, a memorial to destruction. And I felt like there was both of those things going on. In fact, I had two houses. I had my 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 dad's flat that I went to and I had my mum's house and my mum's house was very much a horrible place. My dad's flat was very much a place of hope and the future. Um, and when me and my dad went back to, to Coombe Abbey, we went many, many times back to Coombe Abbey and I sort of saw the, the, the herons, there was a heronry kind of like... Uh, I guess like a heronry hatch where you could look out and see the herons. There was uh, activities that you could do walking around, getting to know the, the culture and the heritage of the place. But the thing I most remember of Coombe Abbey was walking with my dad. Again, it was an autumn day. and The big leaves of all colours coming down from the trees and walking up there. And I think that that's when I fell in love with the season of autumn and that remains my favorite season a, a time when things die but a time when things kind of change into mulch and sort of beautiful beautiful in, uh, colors that come out in autumn and that kind of mixture of beauty and sadness I guess is what I fell in love with walking up towards Coombe Abbey Country Park with my dad under the leaves when I was probably around 10. I just want to climb into a boat and float away on it to sea Travel as far as I can, travel away from me Just want to throw a smooth stone, feel its heavy weight in my hand Throw it as far as I can, throw it away from me Just want to change my flesh to slate and make my mind into a chore Scratch all my thoughts out and rub the bad ones away Rub the bad ones away Just want to change into a bird and fly into the sky, look down at myself from above and find a part of me to love. Just want to become a raindrop and fall down from the grey clouds. Sweat dust inside my soul, I shout when I hit the ground. Just want to become a school of fish and cast a net into the sea. Catch the good parts of me, but throw the bad ones away.
If you want to, you can vote for Getting Better Acquainted or my other podcast, The Family Tree, for the British Podcast Awards. There's a listener's choice option as part of those awards and your listeners and maybe, just maybe, you will choose me. You can do that over at thebritishpodcastawards.com. I'm also working on series two of The Family Tree. Me and my partner, Jen, we're in the process of casting that. Look out for more Family Tree. And if you haven't heard the first series, it's all there uh, over on the website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, all the places that podcasts go to hang out. So you can listen to that show from the beginning. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook and you can find getting better acquainted on itunes soundcloud those kind of places one thing that really helps the show if you have some time it would be for you to leave a rating and a review on itunes uh, telling people about the show and why you like it if you have money to spare and you want to support what i do then you can donate to the show via the paypal link that you can find on the soundcloud page if you want to support the family tree you can sign up to the patreon that would be so helpful because we're making the second season and so we need a budget we need to pay people and so you could help us to do that but remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted <laughs>